<laughs> I'm Helena Hambasket, and you're listening to What's the Move. I created this show uh, because I love music and because I love history. And over the course of the next few months, I'm going to be dissecting different African-American genres of music. You might have seen an infographic floating around the internet called The Evolution of African-American Music. It's a timeline of every musical genre created by black Americans. Portia K. Maltzby created this chart in 1992, and it's been revised a few times, but I think it could be updated a bit. In due time, we'll get into what revisions I'd like to see, but let's get into a history lesson so that we have some context to go with our critiques. This show is not necessarily just about identifying which genres came before the other, but rather how all of our genres are interconnected. As you'll notice, especially earlier in history, many of these artists did gospel records or they were musically trained in the church before creating new sounds. This means that there won't be a linear way to tell the story. Sacred tra tradition influences the secular and vice versa, as you'll find out later. This sometimes happens simultaneously. If you want to follow along, I will post my main reference um, on the archived episode. So uh, I started the show with Ahmad Jamal, and the track is called I Love Music. I chose this one because like, we're all really going through it, and um, I hope that we're finding little bits of joy in wherever we can. And for me, the little bits of joy are really music. I also chose this song because if you're a sample nerd like I am, you recognize that the song was sampled for The World Is Yours by Nas on one of the masterpieces, Illmatic. I was like 15 when I first heard that album. <laughs> and it was like the same time I heard Wu-Tang too, 36 Chambers, like life-changing. This is uh, the second to last episode of our jazz sessions. Um, so if you had to put it on like a timeline, I think I'm gonna stop around the year 1975. Um, by 1975, jazz is like 85 years old and if it was like a person and we said that it started in 1890 with James Reese Europe and all those dudes, it would be like 85 years old, right? Did I already say that? <laughs> I've been smoking a little bit. <laughs> um, but I say that to say like the overlap of genres just gets super bananas around this time. Like if I forget to mention another artist or like a person that's significant in history in this time, like they will probably be mentioned early, later in the show, later in the show, just because like the show's about music, musical history, you know? <laughs> so um, that actually brings me to a, something that I read earlier this week in this book that I'm reading. Um, it's by Kalefa Sene and it's called Major Labels. And in the introduction, he says something um, about like genres and music that I really haven't been able to process until recently. And, uh, hold on. <laughs> he talks about, like, how we generally speak about music and how we categorize it. I'm just gonna, like, read a little passage. <clears throat> Musicians, I've learned, generally hate talking about genres. And reason reasonably enough, it's not their job. Virtually every music interview I've conducted has elicited some version of the sentence, I don't know, why can't it just be good music? No doubt this sentiment captures something true about many musicians, especially accomplished ones. They hate being labeled, and they think more about the rules they break than the ones they follow, reveling in a sense of freedom, especially in the recording studio. Typically, musicians have a sense of who their peers are, 
even if they insist that the comparisons are worthless. Typically, too, they have a sense of industry and audience expectations, even if they say they love to confound them. Often, their comments like their albums reflect a series of assumptions that they're scarcely even aware of about what qualities might make a track acceptable to radio programmers, what sorts of collaborations might be considered valuable or surprising, about how songs are made and when they are finished. You can't really rebel against a genre unless you feel part of it too. He also goes on to write, in many conversations and books about music, genre obsessives are the enemy. They are the mercenary record executives, intent on fitting each new act into a neat little box just to make life easier for the marketing department. And they, we, are the myopic music critics, too busy categorizing music to truly listen to it. Still, this is a defense of musical genres, which are nothing more or less than names we give to communities of musicians and listeners. Sometimes these have been physical communities, revolving around record stores or nightclubs. More often, they have been virtual communities, sharing ideas and opinions through records and magazines and mixtapes and radio waves. Especially in the era before social media and before the internet, fans sometimes had to take it on faith that there were other people out there listening too. I think the story of popular music, especially over the past 50 years, is a story of genres. They strengthen and proliferate. They change and refuse to change. They even, they endure even when it looks as if they are dying out or blending together. It seems that every decade or so, genre becomes so popular that people worry it's disappearing into the pop main, mainstream. The persistence of genres, the persistence of labels has shaped the way music is made and also the way we hear it. So <laughs> that little bit, I'm not even gonna lie to you, that blew my wig back just a little bit. <laughs> um, it really does encapsulate like what I feel about the bittersweetness of trying to describe music you're listening to or even the community that like you're a part of or that you like want to be a part of. Um, I can be like very hyperbolic at times and I love talking shit about noise music. And like although it isn't like my tea, I went to a noise show once and I actually like really enjoyed it. And I guess like at the end of the day, I just couldn't wrap my head around where noise music is like contextual in my world, you know. Um, and I feel like that's exactly what the author of that book is trying to say. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to take a little break and then we're going to get into soul jazz, okay?
to What's the Move on BFF.FM radio. We just heard Stanley Turrentine and Shirley Scott back to back. Turrentine is kind of like the godfather of soul jazz and he developed the core of the soul in soul jazz. (laughs) He threw a little Spanish in there too, as Jelly Roll Morton would say, and some funk too. So you're going to hear like Latin and funky influences in addition to Bob. People say that, sorry, give me one second. I was sick last week and it's still coming out. (laughs) Anyways, so it's supposed to be like an offshoot of Bob, but when I listen to it, I hear the meters. I hear James Brown. I hear Aretha Franklin. Um, And also, like, if it isn't common knowledge, Aretha Franklin came up in the church. Like, her father was one of the pastors in Detroit, And she was also like the choir's like crown jewel on top of being like the first daughter of the church. 
So uh, when you think about Detroit too, what else is popping around that time? Motown, right? So when I think about soul jazz, I also really hear like how Mingus and like the other guys from like the late 50s and the early 60s, like how they were kind of thinking of an amalgamation of black music. And I feel like it's coming to fruition here. Like it's really starting to like shape up in like really interesting ways, right? Um, and I think the connecting factor with hard bop and soul jazz is the civil rights message. More importantly, more importantly, the concept of black power. How are the black power movement and the civil rights movement different? Well, the civil rights movement wasn't just about black liberation. It was about black friendly legislation. America, like on top of that, like, they were doing everybody dirty. Like we know that the Vietnam War started in the 60s and went into the 70s and it terrorized everybody from the United States to Vietnam, right? Um, and also like at the time, I don't know if you know, but like they were forcefully sterilizing Latino women who were immigrating here because they didn't speak English. Um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, that was in the 1800s. That didn't get repealed until the 1940s. And then you have the internment camps. Um, we also have, which in my research I found so crazy, right? The Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968, and it gave all indigenous people full access to the Bill of Rights. Mind you, this was after the Voting Acts, right, of 1964. This was after, like, Loving versus Virginia. Like, this is so wild to me. Um, the civil rights movement, like, it was a force for change for a lot of disenfranchised group groups, but, like, it also had, like, conditions, I guess is my point, right? <laughs> um, the Black Power movement, like, it was more specialized. It was more radicalized, and it wasn't nonviolent in contrast to, like, what the civil rights movement was doing. I think the civil rights movement of the time was more focused on legislation and trying to work within the confines of the imperial, imperialist structure, whereas other movements were doing far more left actions. Um, but that's just my opinion on the matter. I don't think that the black power movement is absolved from critique, um, but I am going to say it with my chest, grassroots, grassroots movements, they do and they did more than like what legislation could ever do. And that doesn't negate what the people did to get that legislation pushed forward. Like they are the grassroots movement that I am talking about. I'm just simply distrustful of our American government system because, you know, even with the abolition of slavery in the 1860s, that still did not mean equality for black people in America. That also didn't stop America from keeping us and others in a state of enslavement either. So as the same with today, the black power movement was about global decolonization, but specific. <laughs> specifically in countries with black people. And I use black people to encompass the diaspora, not just black Americans. Um, and so in music at this time, all black genres were about this in some form or fashion. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, the instruments, um, they were using like, like traditional African roots, like instruments, like, like I was bringing up the first episode, the Banjar, those kinds of things. Um, you're seeing it, music being more melodic in that sense. Um, and if you had to talk about the musical elements, it's mostly an instrumental and genre, like there aren't too many songs with the lyrics. And to me, this stuff is like the precursor to what we hear in black exploitation films. Maybe it also fits a little bit like better as a music score, you know what I mean? Or maybe because it does. 
Um, it also has the capacity to be orchestral too, which I think is like really fun. Cause like when I hear across 110th street, you know the song. Um, sure you can say it's funk and R&B, which it is, right? But I also feel like I can hear this like in Carnegie Hall with like the way that the instruments have that bravado, you know what I mean? And so like that Stanley Turrentine track that we heard to me, like that reminds me of like a funeral procession. It's sad and it's angry, it's mourning. Um, there's an organ in the track too, and organs are also played at funerals, right? Like that's where that comes to mind for me. But in contrast, you know, the Shirley Scott track that I played afterwards, I chose it because she incorporates the organ. Typically, it's a gospel instrument, right? But this time it's like fast and groovy and with this jazz. And she does that for like all of her tracks. If you go back and listen to her, she was an organist first. And that track is called Give Me the Simple Life. In this context, I think about like daydreaming about a better world, how things could be so simple, you know, like we've made revolutionary strides, not even for like a new America, but like for a new sense of humanity, you know. So we'll talk about gospel later, but even gospel at its core is about surviving the hard times through a sense of faith. So that organ element is really tied into like what I feel about the song as a whole, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm going to end up diving into the next tracks with you. This one's one of my favorite. It's uh, Herbie Hancock. Um, and then I'm going to get into uh, Yusuf Latif, too. That's also my man. I really vibe with him. <laughs> All righty. Yeah. 
I'm Helena Hambasket, and you're listening to What's the Move on BFF.FM. Um, so that Yusef Latif track really stuck out to me. Um, the album did specifically just because, like, that album is a banger from start to finish if you really sit down and listen to it. Um, the track we listened to was called Bell Isle, but the album is called Yusef Latif's Detroit. And, you know, as the old tale goes, it was not received well. But please go listen to that album and let it change your life because it's very Curtis Mayfield and very Isaac Hayes. Like, I feel like these guys were all doing this stuff at the same time, just calling it different things. <laughs> um, and I say that to say this is like a sweet spot of genres merging for me or like one of the sweet spots because I love all music, so much music. <laughs> but it's so real. Like people are averse to things they don't understand. And sometimes it takes time for things to really hit. So as I said a few weeks ago, the story that I'm telling is about black music and it's about resistance. Um, with APEC happening for the first time ever in San Francisco and the, holo the Holocaust of Palestinian, Congolese, and Sudanese people, I think it's a perfect time to talk about this. I have like a little beef with the summer of love. Like I know that it's one of San Francisco's greatest cultural exports. But let me say this. Let me like backtrack just a little bit. I think that the way that we talk about the summer of love minimizes what struggles were happening in the exact same exact area at the same time. Like we speak about the movement being free love, being anti-war, anti-capitalist, but it seems like it's only in the context of white musicians and white youth. So like even if there were white artists speaking on the minority struggle, it was only validated because people like Bob Dylan and John Lennon spoke about it. And that still makes me weary for black people because that's still kind of like voyeuristic, right? <laughs> um, and don't get me wrong, like for all, like I love the mamas and the papas. I love the Grateful Dead, all that. But it just reminds me of like the current liberal activist culture, like the ability to dip in and out of social po politics because legislation as a whole is not geared towards like the total disenfranchisement of their existence. But unlike, you know, the grass is a little bit greener and it is now at, to some degree, right? I think that's like what's nice about like what we're doing with resistance these days. We have way more allies from all walks of life. More of us, me included, are starting to understand our struggles and that they're intertwined and that we should be fighting for everyone. Like as the imperialist machine has gotten stronger, we're beginning to align class struggles with diasporic struggles. We're starting to intertwine them with gender and sexual identity struggles, with disability and accessibility struggles as well. Um, I'm not gonna lie, like, I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but like, I just feel like with social media and like the fact that this shit keeps happening, like the propaganda machine is like not working as good as it used to. Like more people are really like linking up and like we're saying what the fuck, you know? So let's chit chat about the Black Panther Party and George Jackson. <laughs> I'm going to try and keep it so short with the Black Panther Party because we could be here all day with the history and the critiques of the movement, which might be done in another episode. I'm not even going to hold you. But a lot of young black urban people asked the question during the civil rights movement and the civil rights movement didn't really have an answer for them. How would black people in America not only win formal citizen citizenship rights, but what about the actual economic and political power? And the Black Panther Party, to some degree, created an answer to that infinite question. They studied gun laws and they policed the police because they were tired of being harassed and murdered by them. 
They started in Oakland, they flowed into Richmond and San Francisco. They created a 10-point program demanding the end to police brutality and the murder of black people. They wanted public programs for the community and prison abolition, abolition among other things. By 1968, the party had established 35 chapters across the country. By 1970, the party had set foot in Cuba, as well as countries in Africa and Asia. And Huey Newton, the first chairman of the party, was an advocate for the gay rights movement as well. So I feel like at its best, the Black Panther Party wanted to take power away from colonial and imperialist structures. Unfortunately, though, there was a colorist and misogynistic problem. A number of the male leaders were rapists, and they didn't incorporate or officially support feminist ideology into their rhetoric until about four years into the party's inception, despite there being women in the party before then. There was also extortion and torture of members as punishment. But it should be said that um, the government did infiltrate the party to destabilize them, so it can be contentious about what was the government and what was the party leaders. But I don't think that still um, negates what people like Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton did to the movement or to the individuals. But, you know, the movement shouldn't be condemned because of that. The party did still create schools even after the original leaders were ousted. But the story is wild and honestly still developing if if and when the FBI decides to release whatever files instead of destroy them. Um, look up COINTELPRO if you don't know. <laughs> um, but honestly, like maybe the better conversation is how human nature, as we know it, bends with an inkling of power or without surrendering to the idea that we can be no better than the oppressors we seek to, we seek to unseat. So... Let's talk about George Jackson, W.L. Nolan, and the Black Gorilla family. George Jackson was sent to prison in 1961 for armed robbery. He robbed a gas station for 70 bucks and didn't kill anyone, yet he was sentenced to an indefinite sent prison sentence. And if you're wondering how old he was, he was barely 20 years old. So, in San Quentin, where he was locked up, he met the Oakland native W.L. Nolan, he was a few years older than him, but Nolan introduced him to revolutionary literature. He taught him about uh, Frantz Fanon. I think I'm saying that wrong. It's Fanon, maybe. <laughs> um, and he also introduced him to Marxist and Maoist ideology. And together, they formed the Black Guerrilla family. That, at the beginning, in its inception, was a prison activist group that formed in 1966, the same year as the Black Panthers were formed. And this group founded... With this, it was founded with the stated goals of promoting black power, maintaining dignity in prison, and overthrowing the U.S. government. Um, because George like was really about it, like he was often sent to solitary confinement, and that didn't really stop his search for knowledge. Nor did that, nor did that stop the communication between his peers and people on the outside. Um, eventually, the letters and the ideas he wrote were compiled into two books. And the word of the Black Gorilla family spread outside of San Quentin, like even to Western Europe, you know, like it had global reach. And I think the scariest thing for the U.S. government when this stuff was dropping was that Jackson's rhetoric was unifying the segregated San Quentin population under a very righteous cause. Like white, Latino, blacks, like you name it, they were in the prison, like talking to each other, organizing. And even now, like is wildly unheard of like that just you know if it's happening like i'm sure that someone's trying to stomp it out because prison is designed for oppression prison is not rehabilitative in any capacity 
prisons are disproportionately filled with black people, but the end game for prison for the prison industrial complex is to get us too poor and too stupid so that we're all in there for them to use our bodies for their capital gains. And I really do see it as a great equalizer in some ways. Outside of skin color, most of us are way too poor and not influential enough to be able to stay out of incarceration by someone else's whim. The prison industrial complex also manifests in structures like ice camps and what we see in Gaza today. So with that in mind, if these segregated groups of people are coming together in prison where they're supposed to be considered the deviants of society and discussing how the prison guards treat them, how the conditions that they live under are inhumane and won't bode well for the powers that be, it doesn't look good, right? So what did they do? They transferred George Jackson and Nolan to Soledad prison. This was in 1969. Jackson had been in prison for armed robbery of $70 for eight years at that point. In 1970, Nolan was murdered by a correctional officer during a yard riot with the Aryan Brotherhood along with two other black men. And this changed George Jackson. He became increasingly confrontational with correctional officers and he spoke often about the need to protect fellow inmates and to take revenge on correctional officers employing what he called selective retaliatory violence. And on January 17th, 1970, George Jackson, Fleeta Drumgo, and John Clutchett were charged with murdering a CEO, John V. Mills, who was beaten and thrown from the third floor of Soledad's wing. This granted them the title of the Soledad brothers and support for them and their cause and there was support for them and their cause. Like, this, there was a whole movement around it. And I need you to understand here, like, what happened was purely speculative, okay? There wasn't concrete evidence to assert the fact that these men killed this corrections officer. They just understood that Jackson was about the action and he was about the rhetoric. So they decided to pin that on him as far as we know. So activists, they worked together to get the three of these men acquitted. Who were, they were honestly being viewed as political prisoners and they were being accused based on their race. The activists also wanted to bring attention to the disproportionate rates at which people of color were being incarcerated compared to their white counterparts and also the socioeconomic factors that led to their imprisonment in the first place. And if this is starting to sound familiar, one of their main supporters was the Angela Davis. She corresponded with Jackson often. She corresponded with him so much that she was tied to the Marin, Marin County Courthouse incident that landed her on the FBI's most wanted list. And I'm gonna summarize that as best as I can just because I only have so much time, but George Jackson's 17 year old brother and three other men um, kidnapped a judge while demanding the release of the Soledad brothers. Unfortunately, his brother and the judge were among the people that were killed in the incident and the Soledad brothers were not released. But in August, on August 21st, 1971, George Jackson and a few other inmates overpowered and held a number of correctional officers hostage. They killed three, and unfortunately, two inmates were also killed and three more were injured. Jackson and another inmate were trying to escape the prison, but they were gunned down and did not survive. At that point, George Jackson spent 10 years in prison for robbing a gas station for $70. He was 29 years old. And... I want to get into the story more because, like, if you read his most famous work, Blood in My Eye, it was finished, like, mere days before he was murdered. 
it, there's also rumblings about the gun that he had in his possession at the time was actually given to him by prison guards themselves in hopes that he would kill himself or be killed. So um, please go read Blood in My Eye and the Soledad Brother Papers. It's just, it's, they're both really short reads and it really does give you a first-hand account of prison treatment. And if you have read The New Jim Crow, this is also compulsory reading, especially if you can't understand his plans and his reasoning of actions, okay? And if you're wondering what happened to the Black Gorilla family, unfortunately, um, like a lot of political movements, they were destabilized by the government, right? Like they developed into a powerful prison gang. They traffic drugs. They do petty shit that's no better than the Aryan Brotherhood at this point. But it's still like a truly a ghost of like what it was before. And like I attribute that to the prison industrial complex, not the morals of its founders. Um, I would also like to add and don't quote me on this about how I came to this conclusion, but I almost guarantee you that George Jackson being radicalized in prison through literature is why we have so much revolutionary literature on the California prison system banned book list. If you don't know what that is, go ahead and look that up because like, I'm sure you didn't really know that there were like books that inmates are banned for reading. Um, and a lot of them are things that like you would be like, wow, I wonder why, because they want to keep us stupid. They want to suppress us. <laughs> um, <laughs> how does that tie into music? Well, the musicians were moved by these groups of people that I spoke about, right? They felt for them. They supported them. They were them. One of the first women ever in the Black, Black Panther Party was a woman named Joan Terrica Lewis. She is a visual artist and a jazz artist born and raised in Oakland, and she's still alive. Um, when George Jackson was murdered and when, Attica, when the Attica prison riot happened in New York, one artist in particular had a lot to say about it. Um, an avant-garde avant jazz artist named Artie Shep, he dedicated a whole album to these events. I'm going to round out this section of the story with Shep's ode to George Jackson and then we'll get into spiritual jazz. Thanks for listening.
into dust and under dust to lie. Songs wine, song song, and song singer, songs goodbye. Songs goodbye. Thanks for coming back. I'm Helena Hambasket, and you're listening to What's the Move on BFF.FM Radio. We just listened to Dorothy Ashby. The track is called Dust. And I love going back to these artists because, um, well, the artists I listened to as a kid because I was like trying to be like all, you know, hipstery niche. And uh, just coming back to it years later with like, in the age of information, the deeper age of information, I just find that like these artists have their flowers now and more people are speaking their name. And Dorothy Ashby is like no exception. Like her album Afro Harping was a staple for me as a teenager. And like I remember as like early adulthood when I was like a nanny and a preschool teacher, I would play that album for the kids. And the parents loved it too. People would always ask me like, what is this? What is this? It's so nice. It's so good. It's so good. Whatever. And uh, it's Dorothy Ashby's Afro Harping. If you haven't listened to that album, please listen to it and listen to the one that we just listened to. Um, it just really brightens your mood. Um, and I know that this sounds crazy too, but I thought that Afro Harping was like the only album that she ever created. Um, just because like when I listened to it, we didn't have everything available on YouTube and Mediafire was un- under an active attack. <laughs> RAP to net neutrality. Um, so... <laughs> So it's like I thought that the album was just like a singular event in the Dorothy Ashby universe. Um, She wasn't even singing on that album on Afro Harping whatsoever. So I chose Dust today because it amplifies the beauty that I like originally found in her music. All right. So I'm learning not to be a genre obsessive. Spiritual jazz, free jazz, avant-garde jazz. Those are like almost synonymous to me in this context. So I won't really be making a point to distinguish them at this point in time, especially because like avant-garde as its own is like defying like labels and being abstract. So I feel like depending on who is listening to it, a song that may already be established may be new and abstract to them. So that's why I don't care to distinguish it. (laughs) Um, I also feel like they share like a lot of things like these genres specifically share like a lot of attributes um all these genres were i would say like offshoots of bop in the sense that they are a response to a chaotic world around them um as i mentioned before you have the civil rights movement and what we just discussed about george jackson and the black power movement and it's like how do you talk about that in a largely instrumental art form well you start you start experimenting with abstract sounds unprecedented times call for unprecedented sounds right um like ornette coleman he low-key started the movement in some ways like what we heard like do you remember that like from the last jazz section session it was like very chaotic but like so was watts in the 60s you know what i mean you also have don cherry experimenting with his his sound and if you remember he was also in coleman's band too 
on that album. But one thing you do have to understand is that in conjunction with the civil rights movement, black people are starting to research religions that are not just Christianity. Um, I will definitely get into this in our gospel sessions. Uh, I briefly spoke about this in the first episode. And if it didn't, if I didn't, I will lay out the question. Is Christianity the religion for black people when it was used to enslave us in the first place? I don't think there's a straightforward answer to the question, but I do think that God manifests in different ways because like that's spirituality, right? Like believing in a higher power. And Alice and John Coltrane, they wanted to explore the depths of that. Pharaoh Sanders wanted to explore the depths of that. Sun Ra did as well. So spiritual jazz, if you had to like give it kind of a, a start time, right? I would say that it started in the 1960s beginning with, or sorry, not the 1960s, I'm, <laughs> the 1940s and 50s, starting with Black, Brown, and Beige and Zodiac Suite by our favorites, Duke Ellington and Mary Lou Williams. Mary Lou, as we know, she found a place for jazz in Christianity. Duke Ellington was using sounds that white audiences had never heard to explain our struggles as black folks. Black people gained more freedom to celebrate their culture and to express themselves religiously. This led to a desire to push the conventions of jazz, with some artists choosing the search for transcendence and spirituality in their music. Um, as you see in history, a lot of black celebrities, whether they be musicians, athletes, political or political figures, they went to Islam as well. Lou Alcindor became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Malcolm Little went from Malcolm X to El-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz. Cassius Clay is now Muhammad Ali. Um, I won't speak for everyone, but just what I know to be true. Islam was in Africa well before Christianity was. Islam is a religion that touched multiple regions in Africa. I won't say countries because the religion predates the borders that King Leopold and the colonizers imposed on Africa. Um, Africa was and still is rich with pagan religions and pagan religions meaning not Abrahamic religions. Okay, My ancestors and my contemporary diaspora believe in humans living harmoniously with nature and with the nature around us and the belief of the supernatural. They believe that objects and places and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. We share our stories and our traditions orally and through song, right? Like, and just rhythmically, um, even after the enslavement happened, like what was I talking about the first episode, how we would make up, you know, beats and things on our bodies because the enslaved, the enslavers would take away the instruments, you know, <laughs> like, with all of this like kind of ideology about everything having a distinct spiritual essence like can't you see why hinduism and buddhism were appealing to black musicians it's disingenuous to say that these african religions were destroyed completely due to the transatlantic slave trade um the transatlantic slave trade in action it's like really bittersweet but like it evolved them like you now see voodoo in Haiti, you have Santeria in Puerto Rico and Mexico. The Yoruba faith like still lives on today across the world. And like also like voodoo and esotericism in Louisiana and stuff like Southern Gothic, all that kind of comes through with like the merging of um, non, not non-Western, non-Abrahamic religions and ideas of thought, right? Um, so yeah, these are just like a couple of examples of African religions brought over and adapted by the harsh circumstances um 
Spiritual jazz is truly like another way that we rejected white supremacy and colonialism. I won't play it today, but John Coltrane's A Love Supreme can be considered one of the defining albums of this genre, um, which I find kind of interesting just because like spiritual jazz after his death in 1967, it takes on like way more Eastern influence than what he composed on that album. Like I don't even think there's like any really like Eastern influence instruments on that album but it's a very solid album for jazz too like don't even you know don't even get it twisted um but i guess we do have to start somewhere right after john coltrane died his wife alice his second wife alice and pharaoh sanders r.i.p who just passed away last year they both were like some of the few people not few they were one of the people a few of the people sorry stoned <laughs> that continued like the sound and like the ideas um i'm probably gonna butcher this but in 1971 alice coltrane and pharaoh sanders collaborated on the album journey of oh my gosh sachi dinanda sachi dinanda yeah i got that sachi dinanda exactly journey and sachi dinanda it combines spiritual jazz with influences of Houdistani classical music. And, um, you know, like in the 60s, too, I'll talk about it. Like when we get out of, like, I guess, black music, too, we'll just kind of talk about musical history as a whole. That's what the artists were doing over there. Or at the time, they were going to uh, different countries that weren't European countries, and they were finding some form of enlightenment, whether that be politically or spiritually. Um, me as a black person, it's really not my place to say if it was cultural appropriation. But I feel like to some degree, though, there are some people that definitely didn't really, um, you know, get the assignment and pay pay the reverence and the respect to the culture that they were like, you know, um, adopting. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. Totally. I'm talking about the ragas, the harps, the sitars, the ouds. Those were Eastern instruments that were put in Alice Coltrane's music and in other artists music. Like, I'm sure that you heard something a little bit foreign in that dust track by Dorothy Ashby. Um, Pharaoh Sanders also took inspiration from Arabic and Indian and Afro-Cuban music to create, like, a couple of different spiritual jazz albums, um, one of them being Karma. And I had the pleasure of going to a benefit for Palestine and watching an artist use an oud in their performance, and it was, like, beautiful. I'd, like, never heard it before live. Um... And honestly, I think it was um, a guitar that was custom made to sound like an oud, but it looked like it and it had the same shape and everything. And it was really cool to watch. And ragas, ragas are like a little bit hard for me to explain uh, because there's really no Western music equivalent to it. But um, it's like a musical scale of sorts that's used in traditional Indian music. And there's a TikToker that I love and uh, she explains ragas and even writes traditional Indian music on lives and teaches you about the spiritual aspect to them. So um, if I can remember, I can let if I can remember, I'll link it because I like I love it. Sometimes I'll just like start shedding a little tear because I'm just like, damn, like there's just something it's spiritual, like it hits you, you know. So um, but I do apologize for not being able to articulate this aspect of ragas. I'm still learning about it, but I'll link it if I can remember. <laughs> um, so I'm going to pause here and have us listen to Alice Coltrane, um, a track that features Pharaoh Sanders. 
It's called Shiva Loka. And listen to all of the instruments that they've added into the jazz. It really is so cool to hear like our jazz baby and how it's like an actualized like senior citizen. Um, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> and afterwards, I'm going to uh, play a couple of abstract sounds uh, from Don Cherry. So you can really hear how like him and Ornette Coleman have taken their sound um, from 1959 into new places. So here it goes. Thank you. 
Tanya kita Trying to catch time. There must be a fourth way to flow with time. This is the organic way. This is the way of the organic society to flow with time. Okay, 
Helena Hambasket, and you're listening to What's the Move on BFF.FM Radio. Um, yeah, so I actually don't have too much more to say about jazz that won't run me over time. <laughs> so I'm just going to let the music do the, the talking. But before I do the last few songs, I have a few announcements. I will be hosting the listening party for the local artist Oddity. Um, it's a live situation. I've had the pleasure of listening to their music recently and it's really been helping me just like get through some weird stuff. So I'm really excited to see them play. Um, please give her a listen, um, or better yet, buy some tickets, come to the show. It's on Monday the 20th and I think it's at seven. What time is it at Lonnie? It's at seven. Do you know? Yeah, it's at seven. Um, yeah. And then also... Earlier that day, 
we are well there's also trans day of remembrance i'm sorry i'm a little stoned again um that's also monday the 20th at 5 30 at the sf lgbtq center um it's also going to be live streamed um if you don't know there is a covid booster available at your local pharmacy so please if you have time this weekend go get one the government does not care about us but i care about us um and then lastly i wanted to plug one of my good friends books um a memoir if you will it's um kind of like but i'm a cheerleader meets moonlight but it's funny and it's like a heart-filled black trans-led collection of like memoir writings and it's one of my homies jasper joiner they are um working on a little like what's the word crowdfunding initiative to try to get this book into print and just like available for y'all to read they have a really great perspective on life they're super awesome caring wonderful individual and just a very talented artist so i'm going to definitely post that in um the archived episode so that link will be available in the next couple of minutes but please if you don't follow them on ig too they are on instagram i'm pretty sure that's linked on the um on the link that i'm going to link so yeah shouts out to jazz i love you love you too joy um yeah so those are my announcements i'm just gonna leave it at that um I think that this is a great time to hop over to gospel and gospel's origins. I think you're going to be surprised about what we talk about, um, especially if you have preconceived notions about the religion. I mean, maybe not as a whole, but like this little bit of it, you know, before we do that, though, I do want to use next week's episode to talk about the international influences of jazz, because like there's so many like. Some of them started jazz, as we saw with the Spanish tinge and all the homies coming from Cuba, like Machito and them. Um, we also, I'm also going to talk about uh, some Filipino jazz artists that I'm really excited about. Um, obviously, like what the Japanese fools were doing in Japan with jazz. I mean, obviously, Bossa Nova. So I'm going to be talking about just like all those influences and hopefully have a couple of uh, new artists that you can listen to and vibe with, too. So um, I really hope that you enjoyed the music today. And if you did, I'm going to have the playlist up on all platforms. I'm actually going to have an extended playlist up on all the platforms um, just because like as we go forward, there's just going to be so much stuff that I just want you to hear, but I do not have enough time to show you on air. <laughs> um, yeah. Happy Friday. If you have to work tonight, if you have to work this weekend, like keep pushing um, free Palestine, free Sudan the congo free haiti like free us all free us all like for real fuck all that shit so um i'm gonna <laughs> end with what a couple more songs i hope you enjoy them i hope you get the underlying message that i'm going for with these last few tracks Alrighty.
Thank you.